And as we've done for the past three weeks, I've given you a uh, worksheet that has three things on it. One thing that it has is a simple outline of the book of Hosea. And uh, typically I've sort of followed that outline. I'm not going to do that tonight. Instead, I'm going to follow the elaborated outline. Now, don't get nervous because I'm not going to touch on everything in that elaborated outline. But I'm going to use it as a guide tonight. Uh, I do believe it's a lot stronger of an outline than the simplified outline. And that's the second thing you'll see is the elaborated outline. Much more detailed, much more in-depth. Uh, and really for all of them, I feel like it's a better outline. Sometimes it's just too much to uh, use as a teaching aid. Then on the back, you'll see an introductory uh, page, some information about the book of Hosea. I want to read this to you tonight. It's uh, probably not as long as last week's was, uh, but it is a little bit longer than the other two that we've done. Uh, but I believe when we get done with this, you'll have somewhat of an idea about the context of the book of Hosea. Hosea, a son of the soil, was probably a native of the northern kingdom. He mentioned Ephraim, the name of the dominant northern tribe, and a synonym for all the northern tribes 37 times. Let me pause there and say this, that oftentimes Ephraim was the title that God used for uh, the northern ten tribes when they were backslidden. It was sort of a name of derision that was used. And uh, God kind of, uh, you know, call you, you know, sometimes when uh, when you was growing up and maybe your parents, you know, had kind of a nickname for you and they'd tell you're acting like a scoundrel or you're acting rotten or something of that effect. That's sort of what God's doing with Israel. The name Ephraim, it is one of the tribes, in fact, the dominant tribe, as the introductory sheet says, but it's also used all inclusively of those ten northern tribes. Hosea was a man who wore his heart on his sleeve. And his book teaches us that sin not only breaks God's law, it also breaks God's heart. A forerunner of the sob-choked Jeremiah of Judah, Hosea prophesied when memories of Elijah and Elisha were still fresh in the land. Hosea ministered for a long time through the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah, and Jeroboam II of Israel. Although Hosea's book reveals his intimate knowledge and love of the northern kingdom of Israel, most of his prophecies were directed against that apostate realm. When God first called Hosea to the prophetic ministry, the vigorous dynasty of Jehu of Israel was still riding high under the direction of the powerful Jeroboam II. Now let me just insert something very quickly here. Most of you are familiar with that name Jehu. You may say, well, that's familiar. I don't even know where from, but that's familiar. Jehu, and if you were in the preaching yesterday here at uh, Walridge, you, you remember that name Jehu being mentioned. Jehu was uh, the general that Elijah uh, anointed. Actually, Elisha did. Elisha anointed him to be the king over Israel. He was the one that God used to exact judgment upon Ahab and upon Jezebel. And uh, through him you have a, tr a transition take place in the monarchy. You had the, the succession of Omri uh, on the, king, uh, the throne of Israel, and then you had the dynasty of Jehu on the throne of Israel. You'll also notice that, that name Jeroboam II. Now, he's not Jeroboam II because he's the son of Jeroboam I. He's Jeroboam II because he's the second man that sat on the throne of Israel that took the name Jeroboam. The first Jeroboam was the one that led the original revolt and split the kingdom. Uh, this Jeroboam is actually of no kin uh, to that first Jeroboam, but uh, he was a wicked man. The northern ten tribes of Israel never had a good king. All through their history, all their kings were bad. So that clarifies a little bit, I think, probably for most people. Uh, it says that military despot had recovered much of the territory Israel had lost to foreign powers during previous reigns. Yet Hosea foretold the downfall of Jehu's dynasty on the ancient battleground of Jezreel, where it had begun. The valley of Jezreel in central Israel is the plain of Ezrelon that we often identify as Megiddo. If you're a Bible student, you know what that is. That plain, that valley, uh, that's, that's the valley of Armageddon. When Hosea made this prophecy, there were no outward signs that the days of the northern kingdom were numbered. But underneath the outward prosperity uh, were religious corruption, social injustice, moral decay, and after the death of Jeroboam II, increasing political anarchy. 
The house of Jeroboam II still ruled during the first three chapters of Hosea's prophecy. From chapter 4 on, there are few references to the lawless kings who rapidly succeeded each other. If you study that time in history, uh, the son of uh, Jehu, uh, who was Zechariah, uh, was murdered, was killed, and uh, there was a succession of assassinations that took place. I mean, some kings didn't last even a month before they were assassinated by someone else. So Jeroboam is uh, sort of the last king of Israel, in a sense. There were some that usurped the throne through violence, but he was sort of the, the last divinely ordained king of Israel. Uh, God had instituted the dynasty of Jehu. It says in the next paragraph, prophets sometimes do strange things. They're, they're a lot like preachers. For three years, Isaiah embarrassed people by walking the streets dressed like a prisoner of war. For several months, Jeremiah carried a yoke on his shoulders. The prophet Ezekiel acted like a little boy and played war, and once he used a haircut as a theological object lesson. When his wife suddenly died, Ezekiel even turned that painful experience into a sermon. Why did these men do these peculiar things? These peculiar things were really acts of mercy. The people of God had become deaf to God's voice and were no longer paying attention to his covenant. The Lord called his servants to do these strange things, these quote-unquote action sermons, in hopes that the people would wake up and listen to what they had to say. Only then could the nation escape divine discipline and judgment. But no prophet had a more painful action sermon than Hosea. He was instructed to marry a prostitute named Gomer, who subsequently bore him three children, and he wasn't even sure the last two were fathered by him. Then Gomer left him for another man, and Hosea had the humiliating responsibility of buying back his own wife. What was this all about? It was a vivid picture of what the people of Israel had done to their God by prostituting themselves to idols and committing spiritual adultery. Since God's people today face the same temptation, that's what the book of James says, uh, that we're not to have any part with the world, we need to heed what Hosea wrote for his people. One of the things I think that will help you as we study tonight is to understand a certain aspect to the idolatry that took place at that time in Israel. Hosea is prophesying at the same time as Amos. And at that time there was calf worship in the northern ten tribes. Jeroboam I had instituted this calf worship. And he had actually developed his own set of priests. Uh, the Bible says of the basest sort, men of Belial, uh, were the ones that he used to be the priests. They had not only uh, were involved in calf worship, but they had adopted uh, some of the Canaanitish nature cults and gods of the Phoenicians. And so during this time, one of the qualities of those Gentile cults uh, was for there to be, uh, what's a tactful word? Well, let's just not use tactical or tactful, let's just use a biblical word. Whoredom was a part of, of their pagan idolatry. Uh, there were women and, and men, too, that were prostitutes of the temple. And in these ancient uh, societies, when they would worship, uh, mass acts of lewdness and uh, sexuality and orgies and things would take place uh, in the temple. That was part of their pagan worship. And so when God is drawing this parallel, and by the way, that's probably uh, uh, where Gomer had first encountered prostitution. When God is drawing this parallel between idolatry and adultery, it's a lot closer correlation than any of us could really imagine. He's saying that the nation of Israel in committing idolatry are doing the same thing that Gomer did in committing adultery. This is a foreign concept to most of us, and this is why, because idolatry has taken a different, uh, a different appearance today than it did in their time. For the most part, uh, in our society, in Western society, you're not going to find people uh, carving idols out of stone or out of wood or out of gold and bowing down before them and praying to them. Idolatry in the purest form is still very much in existence. Uh, you can go to places, be it in, in Hinduism or Buddhism or Roman Catholicism, and find people praying to idols. But in Western culture, and especially in the Bible Belt, you don't see that very often. What you do see is this, and let me give you a basic working definition of idolatry. Idolatry is allowing anything to take the place of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anything can be an idol. doesn't even have to be intrinsically bad to be an idol. Anything that robs our affection, 
<coughs> excuse me, away from the Lord is an idol. And so some of the language you're going to see here in the book of Hosea is indicative of that. When it talks about uh, how that they have committed uh, uh, adultery against the Lord, and it talks about spiritual whoredom and things like that, I mean, there is figurative language being used. There's no question. Uh, but understand that in Hosea's day, and especially in his personal experience, uh, that this hit a lot closer to home. This wasn't just symbolism. It wasn't just figurative language. I mean, you could go to those temples and you'd not only see idolatry, but you'd see adultery taking place as well. The first three chapters of the book of Hosea present for us a, a personal narrative, a, a story about Hosea's home life. And if we look at that elaborated outline, the whole book is basically divided into two categories. We see, first off, a tragedy in Hosea's home life. That's the first three chapters. Between chapters 4 and 14, we see a tragedy in Hosea's homeland. Now, Hosea, confessedly, is one of the most difficult books of the Bible to understand. Not because of the language that's used, uh, not because of the, the metaphors and, and the picture, you know, word pictures that are used, but as you try to attribute some form, some uh, coherent thought to the book of Hosea, you run into some difficulties. The book of Amos and the book of Hosea are sort of in stark contrast one to another. I think it's a beautiful truth that both Amos and Hosea were prophesying at the same time. Because the book of Amos is cold and calculated. It just merely pronounces that God is a God of justice, that Israel had sinned against Him, and that there would be punishment ensuing. All through the book of, Ho of Amos you see cause and consequence over and over again. The children of Israel certainly needed to hear that. That's true for our day. Uh, you know, the Bible says, to, uh, you know, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Sin does have consequence. But the book of Hosea is almost the antithesis of that. Because it's an impassioned plea from the heartbeat of God to an idolatrous and adulterous nation. A nation that he loves, that he cares about, that, that he longs to have fellowship with. And it even says, and I can't give you the reference just off the top of my head, but we'll see it. We'll probably come to it as we study tonight. God just cries out to Israel and he says, Ephraim, how shall I let thee go? And that's sort of the, the mood of the book of Hosea. When you get into chapters 4 through 14, it's almost sort of bipolar, if I can use that word, in its approach. One moment God is, is, pleading with Israel to return unto him. The next moment he's pronouncing judgment upon them. You say, well, that don't sound right. That doesn't sound, Why would God do that? Well, just imagine what Hosea must have felt like as he laid in a bed with just him in it night after night. Wondered where his wife that he loved with all of his heart was. Wondered whose bed she was in. Imagine as he, he laid there and one moment he, he's heartbroken with pity for He sees a woman that has been taken by these idolatrous priests and has been turned into a, a lewd and base creature. And no doubt his heart broke and he cried out and said, Gomer, I just wish you would come home to me. Then all of a sudden, thoughts begin to arrest his mind. He tries to imagine where she is and what she's doing and anger floods his soul. And he pronounces judgment upon her. Back and forth and back and forth, no doubt Hosea would roll in his bed that night. Well, that's what the Lord does with Israel. Let me go a step further and say that's what the Lord does with us. Your sin bothers God. You may say, well, why does God care? God cares because He cares about you. That's why. Because sin is a destructive thing. And he cries out for you, just like he cried out for Israel and says, How shall I let thee go? And so he tells Hosea to draw this analogy, to, to give an object lesson to the children of Israel. He tells Hosea to go out and to take unto him a wife of whoredom. Some have debated whether she became a prostitute later on or whether she was always a prostitute. I believe she was always probably a prostitute. Her name, by the way, means completion, and all these names are significant. Hosea, by the way, uh, the name Jesus in the New Testament. Sometimes you'll hear people that deal a lot with uh, with Hebrew ministry. We've got a missionary to the Jews, and a lot of times in his letter he'll say, We come to you in the name of Yeshua. And uh, that would have been the, the Hebrew name for Jesus, Yeshua. Joshua is another variant of that. Hosea is actually a variant of that name, Yeshua. And it literally means that salvation is of the Lord, or the Lord saves. 
Let me say that uh, we still need to preach that to a lost and dying world. The Lord saves. Uh, the only reason a person doesn't appreciate the fact that the Lord saves is if he thinks he doesn't need to be saved. It's the reason a person has to realize they're a sinner before they'll ever get saved. Because if you're not a sinner, you don't need a Savior. But when you realize you're a sinner, then, then you appreciate the fact that the Lord saves. Gomer's name means completion, and certainly she is a picture of how that Israel's idolatry had come to the, to the full completion before God, and God's judgment was about to fall on them. It says, So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblah, and this is verse, verse 3, which conceived and bare him a son. And the Lord said unto him, Call his name Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. Hosea has three children, and all three of their names are significant. The name Jezreel literally means God sows or God scatters. You can see the picture of a Middle Eastern farmer with seed in his hand as he throws his hand out and sows it and scatters it everywhere. What God is saying is that through this judgment upon the house of Jehu, he's going to scatter the northern ten tribes. And that did happen when the Assyrian army came in and destroyed the northern ten tribes. They were scattered. There has never since then been a nation of Israel as far as the northern ten tribes. They were scattered to the winds. It says in verse 5, And it shall come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Verse number 6, And she conceived again and bare a daughter. And God said unto him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. The name Lo-Ruhamah literally means not loved or not pitied. The Lord says, I want you to name this little girl Lo-Ruhamah. I don't know exactly how it happened. I don't know if the Lord impressed it upon his heart in a significant way and he knew what he was doing. Most people believe, and I sort of lean this way, that, that probably this was also a personal decision of Hosea. He knew, no doubt, that that first child belonged to him, and it could have been that that child in the honeymoon days of their marriage was conceived. He knew that that child was his, but when Lo-Ruhamah, this little girl, comes along, all of a sudden, with a suspicious eye, he's looking at Gomer and starting to believe that that child may not be his. And so he names that child, Lo-Ruhamah, not loved and not pity. The Lord is trying to say to Israel that I've always loved you and I've always had pity, but he says, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. He gives this uh, truth interjected. He says in verse 7, but I will have mercy upon the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, by horses, nor by horsemen. That took place during the reign of Hezekiah. The Assyrians came down and mowed through the northern ten tribes, and then they just kept on going, came to the gates of Jerusalem, and that was when the angel of the Lord slew 185,000 Assyrians. The Lord did that. Verse number 8, Now when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, Call his name Lo-Ami, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. The name Lo-Ami literally means not my people. I believe it was confirmed probably in the heart of Hosea that this child most certainly did not belong to him. And so he is named not my people. But I think that the greater truth is really more tragic. Because what God's saying to Israel is that I have loved you, I have cared for you, I have been long-suffering with you, I have been patient with you, but you've reached a place now where you can no longer enjoy my mercies, I have owned you as my people. I have proclaimed to the entire world. I went before you in a pillar of fire by, day, by night and a cloud by day. I made known to all the Gentile nations that you were my people. But from here to forth, I will not own you as my child. I will distance myself from you. Verse number 10 begins to deal with the nation of Israel in particular. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea which cannot be measured nor numbered. This shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. You say, wait a minute, preacher, we just changed gears, yeah? We just changed gears. Remember that God is sort of uh, sporadic in the book of Hosea. In the midst of this heartache, in this tragic picture, 
The Lord reminds the nation of Israel that though hard times are coming, the judgment of God will surely fall, that there will come a day when he will own them again as his people in a national sense. Let me say this, that right now, right now, God still doesn't own the nation of Israel in a national, public, diplomatic sense in the day that we live in. The Bible teaches us that he's not cast off Israel. They're still his people. But can you look at the nation of Israel and say that the blessing hand of God is evidently upon them? I don't know that you can do that. I mean, every nation in the world hates them. Every nation in the world is turned against them. And an even greater tragedy is that they as a people are still uh, fixated in Judaistic idolatry and Orthodox Judaism. The veil is still not taking away, taken away in the reading of the Old Testament, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter number 3. They still as a people have not turned to God, but there's coming a day when they will turn to God. It says in verse 11, Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together, and appoint themselves one head. We know who that head is. And they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Chapter 2 says this. Now some years have passed. The children have gotten older. Now I find this to be a beautiful truth. Hosea is speaking, and he says, Say ye unto your brethren a me, and to your sisters Ruham. You notice what Hosea did there? The Lord says, Name that little girl, Lo, Ruham. That prefix, Lo, denotes the I. It's a negative prefix, not. And so, in the depths of Hosea's heart, and in the privacy of his prayer closet, he knew that that little girl was named Lo, Ruhamah. He knew that that little girl was named Not Love. But when he looked at her with tender and fatherly affection, he, he called her loved. He said, Ruhamah. Same thing with Loami, not my people. When he looked at that little boy in public, he called that little boy of me, my son, my people. And he tells them they're older. They know what's going on at this point. They know who their mother is. They know what her their mother is. They know why she's not home. They know the heartache of their father. And so Hosea turns to them and says, Plead with your mother. Plead. For she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. Let us strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born and make her as a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children for they be the children of whoredoms. For their mother hath played the harlot. She that conceived them hath done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. Let me pause here. What Hosea is saying is this. Hosea had every right in that culture and society to publicly shame Gomer and to shirk his responsibility as a husband and father because she was a harlot and because those children were the children of an harlot. He had the right to publicly turn them out and leave them to be bought, uh, sold into slavery, to starve on the streets. And what he's saying is this. He's saying, if she doesn't return, I'll have to do that. Can you hear the voice of God yet in it? He's saying, judgment is coming, but plead with her. Plead with Israel. Plead with her as a nation. I don't want to turn her out. I don't want to bring judgment upon her. But if she continues down this path, I will have no mercy upon her. She's gone after her lovers. She's played the harlot. Verse number 6, Therefore, behold... I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. This is the first in a series of I wills that the Lord gives us in chapter number 2. And it's interesting because you find the same thing in uh, Amos, but the Lord says, I've done this in the book of Amos. You remember we talked about it last week. He said, I've done this, I've blessed the land, I've done this, I've done that. Then he goes uh, through a bunch of negative things that he's done. He says, I, I've sent... The, the uh, locusts, I've sent the drought, I've sent the fire. But with every single one that he mentions, he says, Yet have ye not returned again. But with Hosea, he's not saying, I've done this and you've turned away. No, the divine eye of God is cast in the future. And he's saying, I will do this to try to bring Israel back to me. The first thing he says is, I'll hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. The Lord says, I'm going to make it difficult for her. Let me say, I'm glad the Lord does make sin difficult for us. 
That's not to say the devil doesn't do everything he can to make it easy for us. But the Lord will also do everything he can to make it difficult for us. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. I think when it talks about lovers, it's speaking for the nation of Israel about the idols that they pursued after Baal and Ashtaroth and Moloch and all of these pagan idols that they worship. In other words, Israel is going to continue to pursue after them, but will not catch them, will not overtake them. She's going to keep searching, but she'll never find what she's searching for. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband. For then was it better with me than now. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. That's one of the reasons I believe she was probably a temple prostitute, is that language right there. All these things that Hosea had given to her and provided her with, she took them to the temple, gave them to the priests, and they took and gave them as offerings for Baal. Well, isn't that a picture of us in our backsliddenness? I mean, God's given us the breath that we breathe and the food that we eat and the health that we enjoy and the time that we're afforded. So oftentimes we take all those things and, and spend and, and exhaust those resources on the things of the world and the things of the flesh. Verse 9, Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof, and my wine in the season thereof, and will recover my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And now will I discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and none shall deliver her out of mine hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, and her Sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she hath said, These are my reward that my lovers have, have, have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. And I will visit upon her the days of Balaam, wherein she burned incense to them. And she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers, and forget me, saith the Lord. The Lord's saying, I'm going to remove all the props that I've allowed her to have in her life of sin. I'm going to take away all the blessings that I've given to the nation of Israel. And I'm going to allow them to feel the full force of their idolatry. You know, oftentimes what the Lord does when we get out in sin, He just backs away. God, God has the ability and capability to judge us in a mighty way. As I was reading, though, there was a quote that stuck out to me, and it was this, that one of the greatest ways that God can judge a person is just to let them go their own way. You live in sin, and it'll destroy you. God don't have to destroy you for living in sin. Sin will destroy you if you live in sin. We don't like to believe that, but that's the truth of it. No doubt Gomer didn't want to believe that. No doubt she entertained in her mind that these men that would come into the temple and would lay with her, that they loved her and they cared about her. Evidently, at least one of these men she married, because she says about Hosea in, uh, let's see, verse number 7, she says, I will go and return to my first husband. No doubt there had been one that had pitched woo to her, and no doubt there had been one that had, had whispered sweet nothings and had promised her the moon and the world. He was going to take her out of the temple and make her his wife and a respectable woman again, but it didn't turn out that way. Let me tell you something. Sin never works out how we think it's going to work out. never works out that way. And so she says, I'll go and return to my first husband. Therefore, behold, now this is the grace of God. I will allure her. You know, God won't force you to love him. He has the capability, but he won't force you to. That language, allure, it has, for lack of a better term, has that, that idea of pitching woo, you know. You remember when you was dating 150 years ago or something, right? You remember holding hands, passing notes, writing poems, singing songs, just doing anything you could to try to get the attention of that person whom you cared about. The Lord says, I will allure her. I will begin to try to show her how much I love her. It says, and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. I will give her her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. You remember where the valley of Achor is? What the valley of Achor is? The valley of Achor is named that because that's the place that Achan died. Achan was the one in the early book of Joshua uh, that had, when they overtook Jericho, and the Lord said not to take anything from Jericho, it's a cursed land, 
nothing is to be taken from it. Achan was the one that took the, the silver and the gold and the Babylonian garment and he took and hid it under his tent. God told Joshua there's sin in the camp. And they began to cast lots, and, and God narrowed it down to Achan. They took Achan and his wife and his children. They even took his cattle. I mean, they took the man's dog, everything, and brought it out and stoned it and burnt it with fire. And they named that place the Valley of Achor, which literally means the Valley of Trouble. God's saying this, in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your backsliddenness, that trouble that you run into is going to be a door of hope into which return, you can return unto the Lord. He says, And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishai, and shalt call me no more Bala. Both of those words were words that Hebrew women used for their husband. Bala means my master. You remember in, I believe it's the book of First uh, Peter, where the Bible says that, that, Ea, that Sarah called Abraham her Lord, called him master. And it denotes the idea of authority. But the word Ishai literally means my husband. And it's a term of affection. And he says that one day, and again, the prophet is looking beyond the immediate and looking into the future after that great day of the Lord that's still coming in which the back of the Jewish people are going to be broken by the persecution of the Antichrist and Christ will return in power and in glory and set up His kingdom. In that day, when that time comes, no longer will they just see the Lord as a Lord and a lawgiver, but then they'll have a relationship with Him. Oh, what a day that's going to be when in one day the entire nation of Israel turns in saving faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, For I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth. That name Balaam uh, is a name uh, of an idol. It says, I'm going to take the idols, the names of the idols, out of their mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day will I make a covenant with them with the beasts of the field, and with the fowls of heaven, and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword, and the battle out of the earth, and I will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness, and in judgment, and in loving kindness, and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth, and the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. But the Lord's saying there is, He's saying when that day comes, there's going to be harmony. Going to be a harmony between me and the beasts of the field and the clouds of the heaven and the people of Israel. And through all that, I'm going to bless the land with the former and the latter rains, and I'm going to bless them with wealth and prosperity. Notice this, and I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. Some of you might say, well, how did we get there? <laughs> we started with plead with your mother in verse number 2. How did we get in verse 23 to they shall say, that, that, that he'll say to him, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. Remember that God, in pleading for the nation of Israel, he's using Hosea and Gomer as an illustration, but it's not Hosea speaking, it's the Lord speaking. And so as this historical narrative is being played out, the Lord's heartbeat just begins to thump louder, it seems, than the idolatry and adultery of Gomer. And he begins to look for and long for the day when the nation of Israel will be restored unto him in righteousness. And I like this phrase. Look at it again in verse number 20. And I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness. The nation of Israel has always had a problem with faithfulness. Just like you and I will always have a problem with faithfulness. Man, we get right with God and it seems ten minutes later we're wrong with him again. And it's not him. He doesn't change. It's us. But there's coming a day when the nation of Israel will finally be betrothed to the Lord in faithfulness. Let me say that for us, because in that day, uh, the Bible says that the Lord hath broken down the middle wall of partition between the Jews and the Gentile. And in that day, it's, it's going to be one people. Not several peoples. One people. When the millennial kingdom is set up, it'll be one people. And for you and I, let me say that we, even as Gentiles, can look forward to a day when, when, when we lose this flesh, when this vile body is changed to be like unto his glorious body. We can look forward to a day 
when we'll be betrothed to the Lord in faithfulness. There's no more discouraging thing as a Christian than dealing with your own unfaithfulness. But there's coming a day when we'll deal with it no more. Chapter number 3, probably in my opinion, the first three verses of chapter 3 are some of the most beautiful in the entire Word of God. So the pleading of the children did not do anything. Gomer has gotten herself into a mess worse than even Hosea thought she would because somehow in the process of all of this, Hosea has cast her off. She is no longer his wife. We don't know where the children are at this point. And Gomer, to try to sustain herself, has sold herself into slavery, possibly to that husband that she married after Hosea. Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet love a woman, beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who took to other gods and loved flagons of wine. So we can understand something. The love that's about to be expressed from Hosea to Gomer in this transaction is a picture of the love for Israel, and I'd say even a picture of his love for us. How did God express his love? For us. The Bible says that God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When, uh, God didn't wait for us to get out of our mess before he loved us. He loved us when we were in our mess. And in the same way, the nation of Israel isn't going to get themselves out of a mess. God is instead, Christ is going to return and get them out of that mess. And so this is indicative of that. Verse number 2, So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of of silver, and for an homer of barley, and an half homer of barley. Fifteen pieces of silver was a pretty cheap price. In fact, according to the book of Exodus, fifteen pieces of silver is half the price of a common slave. It tells you what the world really estimates us at. I mean, it's we're getting it's going to be political time here pretty soon, right? Political time, and uh, it, I mean, it's just right around the corner. And people are going to start courting the Christian vote. I guess they might start courting the Muslim vote now. I don't know. But for years and years and years, I mean, you know, when, when, uh, you know, when it came time around for, you know, election time, all of a sudden the politicians started going to church because they were courting the Christian vote. Let me tell you something. The world has no interest in us except in as much as it can use and abuse and discard us. At the end of the day, we're valued less than a slave to this world. And Gomer was to the person that owned her. And Homer of barley and then half Homer of barley, that was about a month's supply of food. And barley was, was poor folks' food. And in fact, people that had money usually fed barley to their animals. And so basically, he gets Gomer at a discount rate. This is a way in which the type differs from the reality because the Lord didn't get us at a discount rate. No, he paid the full price. He, he, he gave the full amount in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, this has beautiful practical implications, but also dispensational implications. And I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot, and thou shalt not be for another man. So will I also be for thee. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So what, what Hosea says to Gomer is he says basically this, you're on probation, Gomer. For a period of many days, you're just going to stay here at home. You're not going to leave the house, but nor are you going to enter into the bedroom. You're on probation. During this time, I'm going to watch you. I'm going to observe you. And if you will obey, and if you'll be faithful, then we can have the relationship we once had. Dispensationally, that's the time period the Jews are in right now. They've abode for many days now. I don't know how many more days. I hope not many more days. But they've abode for many days now without a king, without a prince, without a sacrifice, without an image, without an ephod, and without teraphim. In other words, they have nothing in the way of the instruments or the animals or the authority 
to have the religious worship that they once had. Now, where do you think synagogues came from? Synagogues came into being in between when the captivity temple was destroyed, the, tem- the temple of exile that, that Ezra and Nehemiah had a hand in building, and Zechariah and, and Joshua and Zerubbabel. Between when that was destroyed by the Greeks and when the temple of Herod was built that existed in the day of Christ, synagogues were developed because there was no means for them to have any outward vestiges of, of worship. And so they began to put synagogues in places so that there would at least be uh, locations where the Word of God could be taught. But ever since the temple of Jerusalem was carried away and the captivity temple was destroyed afterwards, since Solomon's temple and the captivity temple have been destroyed, the Jews haven't been able to have their religious sacrifices. You'll hear all the time. I mean, if you if you watch like TBN and listen to Perry Stone or guys like that, hope you don't. But if you do, you'll hear them talk all the time about red heifers, red heifers, red heifers. Uh, the reason is because the red heifer was needed to uh, purify people ceremonially before they could come in and minister before the Lord. And uh, the heifer would be burnt upon the brazen altar, and then the ashes would be taken and put in water, and that water would be sprinkled upon the priests so that they could be purified before they would go in to offer sacrifices. Because there's no red heifer, there's no purification. Every Jew in this world is ceremonially unclean before the Lord, and so they will not uh, begin to, even if they had a temple, they wouldn't sacrifice until they believe they can have a red heifer. And they got, I mean, they got everybody. I mean, they've got, you think that grade A, you know, black Angus is expensive. You talk to these guys trying to breed red heifers. They've been doing it for years and years and years. I, I guess they will one day. I don't know. I'm thankful that, that my conscience has been sprinkled by something greater than the red heifer. I've been purged from dead works to serve the living God, the Hebrews writer said. Uh, and they've abode for many days without these things. They're in a probation period, so to speak. God hit the stopwatch on his dealings with the nation of Israel at Calvary. They rejected their king. They rejected their Messiah. They rejected their Savior. And when they rejected him, the Lord hit the stopwatch on his dealings with them. And so the dealings won't resume until the last seven years that were promised to Daniel, which is the seven-year tribulation period. And, of course, that's a sermon for another time. Now, we've got about ten minutes to do eleven chapters. You think we can do it? I bet we can. I bet we can. We're not going to do them like we did the first three. All right, so we've seen the tragedy in Hosea's home life. What about the tragedy in Hosea's homeland? The next three chapters, uh, or uh, three chapters, four, five, six, seven, four chapters, if I can get my math right, present to us the nation of Israel's polluted. God draws the nation of Israel into the courtroom of sorts. Look at the first five verses of chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land because... And he goes down lists several reasons. There's no truth, mercy, knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying and killing and stealing, committing adultery, they break out. Blood toucheth blood. Therefore, that's a word of cause and effect. Therefore, that this is in existence, so this will happen. The land shall mourn. Everyone that dwelleth therein shall languish. God is drawing the nation of Israel into the courtroom. He is laying out much the way that he did in the book of Amos. This is sort of the, the period in time if Hosea is rolling around on his mattress and, and battling you know, a, a battle between his, his head and his heart. This is sort of when he's given into the side of his head. The Lord is giving the judgments. He's saying, this is what you've done. This is why I'm going to punish you. He gives a commentary, a description about the people of Israel. Verse number 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. Uh, that no priest, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. He goes on, uh, he starts to describe the, the sins of the people. They eat up the sin of my people, talking about the priests, uh, and they set their heart on iniquity. And there shall be, this is interesting language, like people, like priests. The priests under Jeroboam II were the ones that were leading the people in this iniquity. And what he says is this, the leadership is rotten, so the people are rotten. He begins to describe all of the things that they've done. He sums it up 
in verse number 11. Whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. That's all there is. Whoredom, speaking of adultery. Wine, speaking of drunkenness. And new wine, speaking of debauchery and gluttony. He says, that's the commentary I have on these people. My people ask counsel at their stocks. The stocks is referring to the idols. And their staff declareth unto them the sorcery and witchcraft they were involved in. For the spirit of whoredoms hath caused them to err, and they have gone a-whoring from under their God. Let me just pause here. Now, we don't have time. We're going lickety-split. But let me just pause to say this. That it's the spirit of whoredoms away from the Lord that's really the source and heartbeat of all of our iniquity. It's that we have a problem with God's authority. We have a problem with God's authority. This is true in a home. That a home can never have harmony until the husband appreciates his authority and the wife submits his authority. A lot of homes have been wrecked because either one, the husband didn't appreciate his authority, he instead used it like, you know, like some kind of big thumping stick. I don't know if that's a word. We say it to LB when he has something to hit people with. That's a thumping stick. Be like a thumping stick to, to lead their wife about by the nose and make them mind and make them do right and all that stuff. And that can wreck a home. And then equally, homes have been wrecked by women that had a chip on their shoulder. Not really towards their Lord, but towards God, or not really towards their husband, but towards the Lord, because the Lord said the husband is the head of the wife. In the same way, in our relationship with the Lord, everything's really traced back to an authority problem with God. Satan had an authority problem with the Lord. We have an authority problem with God. Until our will is broken, we can't have happiness. We can't have harmony. It's absolutely impossible to do so. Verse number 15, he begins to give a caution to Israel, uh, or to Judah, excuse me. He gives two things. The first thing is a message to Judah. Though thou, Israel, play the harlot, yet not yet let not Judah offend. And come not ye unto Gilgal, neither go ye up to Beth-Avon, nor swear the Lord liveth. For Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. Now the Lord will feed them as a lamb in a large place. Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. What's the Lord saying here? This is sort of figurative language that's used. He, he turns his attention to Judah. And he says, Judah, don't do what Israel's doing. Judah's the southern two tribes. They had had a succession of good kings that had led them sort of back to the Lord. And he says, what they're doing, what Israel's doing, don't do what Israel is doing. It's interesting that the Lord uses the name Beth-Avon. He's talking about Bethel there. But Bethel literally means the house of God. But Beth-Avon means the house of wickedness. And he's saying that what should be, or not what should be the house of God, what they call the house of God is actually the house of wickedness. He says this, that like a backsliding heifer, my, my old preacher, I mean, and I guess a lot of old preachers, they preach messages and they give a title that shock people. And uh, one of the things they'd always, they'd preach on that and they'd say, what's the matter with that old heifer? You know, and I, I don't know, I guess 50 years ago people showed up to hear stuff like that. I don't think they would now, but they did then. But that's a word picture that's being used there. It's the idea of a an ox or even a donkey, any sort of burden, a beast of burden, that whenever the yoke is about to be placed upon them, they step away and revolt from the responsibility. And what the Lord's saying is every time I've tried to yoke Israel and do something productive in their life, every time that I've tried to wrangle them, and use them for my glory, they have backed away from what I've longed to do in their life. He says, now I'm going to feed them as a lamb in a large place. He's saying, now I'm going to let them roam the hillside. You remember what the Lord said about the nation of Israel? The Bible says he was moved with compassion when he saw them as sheep having no shepherd. Scattered people. This is a troubling verse. Ephraim is joined to idols. Remember, Ephraim is the name for Israel when they're backslidden. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. It's a message to Judah. Stay away from Israel. They're backslidden on me. Look at chapter number uh, 5. I want you to see. It goes to, uh, that you see a warnings addressed to Judah, then warnings applicable to Judah. And he starts to deal with Israel, what's going on there. 
Hear ye this, O priests, and hearken, ye house of Israel, and give ye ear, O house of the king, for judgment is toward you, because ye have been a snare on Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters are profound to make slaughter, though I have been a rebuker of them all. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hid from me. For now, O Ephraim, thou committest whoredom, and Israel is defied. The Lord says, I know what they're doing. He says this, they will not frame their doings to turn unto their God, for the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them, and they have not known the Lord. They will not frame their doings. Look what it says, to turn unto their God. You know what God's saying? He's saying they won't get their life in such a shape that they can seek me. You know how Paul said it? Paul said, make no provision for the flesh. You know part of the reason we can't get right with God? Because we won't get rid of what's wrong with God. If we won't get rid of what upsets and offends God, we'll never get right with God. You can cry over it. You can weep over it. You can, you can, uh, you know, I mean, you sit down, clothe yourself with sackcloth and ashes. But whatever is sin in your life, you won't get it out of your life. You're never going to stay right with God. You can go to an altar. You can weep and cry. But if when you go home, whatever it is that's sitting in your house or whatever it is that's in your life, if you won't get rid of it, you won't stay right with God. You'll go right back to it like a backsliding effort. Let's move on. I, I want to do more in chapter number 5, but I, I don't think we have time. He just he talks about their determination to do wrong in the first seven verses, and then in the rest of the chapter, he talks about his judgment upon them. Verse number Chapter number 6 the tone changes again. Now it's a heart message, not a head message. The Lord says this, Come, or no, I'm sorry, this isn't the Lord, this is Israel speaking. Come and let us return unto the Lord. For he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. Now there's differing opinion as to what those verses are, are trying to tell us. There's no question that this is Israel speaking of repentance. But some folks claim that this is a false repentance that Israel is setting forth. Some people say they're treating God like, like he's, you know, just a Swiss clock. They're trying to inject cold mechanisms into their relationship with the Lord and saying if we'll return, if we'll repent, then the Lord will do this and that and this and that, but it's not a real repentance. Others say that it is a real repentance, and they are merely exhibiting faith in the fact that the Lord will change their situation. If they'll turn unto him, the Lord will revive them. I'll be honest with you, I don't know which it is. I would tend to believe that it's probably the former because of what the Lord says in verse number 4. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew it goeth away. It sounds to me like what the Lord is saying is this, you sound repentant now, but like the morning cloud or the early dew, it's just going to vanish away. And let me just inject this commentary on that. The Lord knows us. He knows if we're sincere or if we're being hypocrites. He knows you may impress everybody at church. You may impress all your friends. You may impress your family, get folks off your back, get them to quit bugging you, get them to think everything's right. But the Lord knows whether you're sincere or not. And he says, what can I do to you? What can I cause to happen in your life? Through the rest of it, and Hosea, again, it sort of changes scenes in uh, Hosea begins to speak about some of the things that he has seen, and the Lord speaking through him. He says, I've seen all these things in chapter 5. They've committed iniquity. I see it, and I know it. He begins to describe these things. Men have transgressed the covenant, dealt treacherously. Gilead is a city of them that work iniquity, polluted with blood. He sees this image as troops of robbers wait for a man, so the company of priests murder in the way by consent, for they commit lewdness. The priests know what's going on, but they won't they won't cry against it. Uh, it's beneficial unto them to keep quiet. It says, I've seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There's whoredom. Uh, there is the whoredom of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Also, O Judah, 
he hath set an harvest for thee when I return to the captivity of my people. That's dispensational prophetic language that's being used there. Uh, the judgment that's coming upon Ephraim and upon Israel is going to happen quickly, but like a harvest is something you wait for. There's a judgment coming on Judah as well, though it will not happen immediately. Look at chapter number uh, 7. This describes the Lord's contempt for Israel. And uh, I want to point out three word pictures that are used here uh, because I believe they're very beneficial and I believe a lot of people probably have questions for them. The Lord begins to talk about all the things that are wicked in Israel. In the first seven verses, He describes the wickedness that's in the kingdom and, and, and in the authority and the political corruption that's taking place. But beginning at chapter number or verse number 8, he, he gives three word pictures, and I want you to notice them. It says, Ephraim, he hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake, not turned. Look at verse number 6. It says, For they have made ready their heart like an oven, whilst they lie in wait. The, their baker sleepeth all the night. In the morning it burneth as a flaming fire. They are all hot as an oven, and have devoured their judges. All their kings are fallen. There is none among them that calleth unto me. The first, and I kind of like the way the elaborated outline says this, he takes us into the bake shop, and he shows us a cake not turned. In other words, at that time, uh, it was common for the baker to uh, get the oven heated up and, and it would be at a fairly low heat. He would set something in there and then go to sleep. In the middle of the night, he would have to awaken and turn over the cake that he was baking so it would bake evenly on both sides. He says, in the midst of their apathy, their spiritual sleep, they're like a cake not turned. Now, some of you ladies, you know this is uh, true, that if you're baking anything, and I know it's not really a cake like a, you know, the, a cake mix cake, but it's like baking bread that has to be turned for it to bake evenly. Uh, if you don't bake it, what happens? One side burns, and the other side don't cook. And you can't eat either side. What the Lord's saying is that Israel is useless to me. Because they have not turned. Because they have not turned. That's what the word repentance means, isn't it? It's a turning, changing of direction. It says Ephraim is like a cake, not turned. Verse number 11, Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. When they shall go, I will spread my net upon them. I will bring them down as the fowls of the heaven. I will chastise them as their congregation hath heard. He says they're like a silly dove, like a bird that flitters about to one place and to another. They're trying to play the diplomatic big shot. They're running to Egypt and then they're running to Assyria and they're trying to play one off the other and they think in those that they have safety. Boy, if there's ever a picture of Israel today, that's it. Trying to play the diplomatic game to survive in the politically hostile climate that they're in. You know how that ends, don't you? The whole world turns against them. They can't save themselves through their diplomatic ingenuity. The Lord and the Lord alone can save them. Then finally, in verse number 16, he says they return, but not to the Most High. They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. He says they're like a deceitful bow, or could we put it this way, like a crooked bow. I don't know about you, but it don't do you much good to have a crooked bow. No matter which way you shoot it, it never lands on target. That's what God's saying about Israel. Everything I've tried to do in their life, they've never ended up where I've wanted them to end up. I've tried to point them this direction, they wound up over there. I've pointed them this way, they've wound up in the middle. Everything, everything I've done in their life to direct them right, they've wound up wrong. It says they're of no use to me. Chapter number 8 begins to describe them as a punished people. They've trampled the covenant uh, in the first 14 verses there. And I understand we won't have time to deal with all of it. I've run out of time. But I do want to read through the outline at least and uh, then say a word about the closing verses. He describes in the first six verses where they have sinned, what they have done wrong. Then he describes what they have sowed. And there's a 
verse here that most of us are familiar with. Uh, in verse number 7, they have sown the wind, they shall reap the whirlwind. Uh, it says, It hath no stalk, the bud shall yield no meal, if so be it yield, the stranger shall swallow it up. They had flirted with Gentile nations. They wanted to be like the Gentiles. Well, now, buddy, they were going to get to be like the Gentiles because the Assyrians were going to come in and steamroll their land with a scorched earth policy and take them away captive and intermarry them with other nations. That's where the Samaritans come from. Uh, we spoke about that last week. They, they sowed to the wind. Now they're going to get the whirlwind. Boy, you better be careful. As you live in sin, you'll get the results of sin. And sometimes, and I, and I, boy, if there's ever a message to young people, it's this. You want to be like the world? You'll wind up like the world, broken, battered, bruised, and discarded. It says you've sown the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. He describes the consequences in chapter number 9, their bewilderment and their barrenness. He describes the terrible conditions that exist in the land at that point. You say, boy, this is, this is, this is very, uh, schizophrenic. That's the word I was looking for. It's very schizophrenic, isn't it? Yes, it is. Because God's heart and His head are battling it out in the book of Hosea for His people Israel. Verse number 11, it, or chapter number 11, it changes tunes. He begins to talk about the things He's going to do in their life. Most of this looks ahead. And by the way, there's a beautiful prophecy in verse number 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. I'm sure that perplexed the rabbis for a lot of years. doesn't perplex me because the Bible teaches me that Christ uh, fled into the land of Egypt when they were young to avoid the persecution of Herod and came back out of the land of Egypt to prophecy looking ahead to how the Lord was going to redeem the people of Israel, and he will redeem the people of Israel. He talks about their persistence in chapter number 11, uh, how they persisted in sin. Chapter number 12, he deals with their past, and there's some very important... Take the time to read it. Okay, Take the time to read it. He points out the fact that Israel and Judah both have a common ancestry. And he points out the fact that, that both of them go back uh, to Jacob. It was at that point that the lineage split. You remember the Edomites are descendants from Esau, the brother of Jacob. But the Israelites and the nation of Judah, both those nations are descendants from Jacob. And so in the way with uh, Jacob that Judah got the upper hand in the birth by grabbing the heel, so to speak, or was trying to of uh, Esau so Judah would survive uh, their captivity and then how he stole the blessing and then how he turned to the Lord. All these are indicative of uh, Judah, but then the story about Jacob's wages, his deceitfulness in dealing with his uncle Laban, and uh, are, are indicative of the nation of Israel and their deceitfulness with the Lord. But the one thing that rang true in Jacob's life before he uh, met the Lord at Bethel, the one thing that rang true was his love of Rachel. Rachel is a picture of Israel uh, in the Old Testament. Leah is a picture of the church in the life of Jacob. Rachel was barren, but she was loved. Uh, Leah was not always loved, but she was always fruitful. And in that way, it's a picture of Israel and of the church. What it's saying is this, the way that Jacob loved Rachel, the Lord still loves Israel. Describes in verse chapter 13 their punishment, the things that they have done. And there's about probably eight or ten things described there. Look at chapter 14. I want to read this and say a word, and then I'm going to hush. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words, and turn to the Lord, and say unto him, Take away all iniquity, and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Asher shall not save us. You remember Asher? Asher, uh, the son of uh, of Jacob, and his name meant, uh, the, the message that was connected with his name was, As thy days, so shall thy strength be. Saying that that promise isn't going to save them. The, the Lord's putting more on them than they can bear. And they can't depend on that, that the Lord would just give them strength to endure. No, the Lord's going to have to intervene. We will not ride upon horses, neither will we say any more to the work of our hands, Ye are our gods, for in thee the fatherless find mercy. What does the Lord say? 
I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. Now remember, this is also Hosea saying this. This is the Lord saying, but it's also Hosea saying, when they do that, just as the Lord saying with Gomer, when Gomer will admit that she's sinned, she's done wrong, that the other lovers can't save her, they can't help her, that, that Hosea and Hosea alone is her only hope and her only heart, then Hosea says, I will love her freely. We'll have the relationship we once had. In the same way, the Lord says, when Israel does that, I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. In other words, I'll return day after day to bless them and prosper them. He shall grow up as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon, speaking of Israel. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. You remember Lebanon was where the seed, they were famous for cedars. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. You know the message of the corn, don't you? Except, except a, a kernel of, of corn fall into the ground, die and fall into the ground, it abideth alone. But if it does that, bring forth much. The Israelites, the Lord's going to bring back. And, and during that time and gather back, it's going to be a lot smaller than what they once were. But through them, the Lord will revive them as a nation. Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. Who is wise, and he shall understand these things? Prudent, and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them. But the transgressors shall fall therein. I, I, we didn't read over it because we ran out of time. Somebody asked me, said, You going to teach it? Every verse, I said, well, we'll see. <laughs> but there's a place in the book of Hosea where the Lord says this, I will plant them. I will plant them. You remember what Jezreel means? God sows. God says, I'm going to scatter them. But there's coming a day when I will plant them. That day is still coming for the nation of Israel. But you know, the greater truth I see in this is that even in the midst of our sin, God loves us. It breaks God's heart when we sin, and it breaks God's heart to chastise us. But God's gracious enough that if we turn and repent, He'll revive us. He'll give back, as He said in the book of uh, Joel, He'll give back the years that the canker worm hath eaten, the palmer worm and the locust. And He can do in our lives what He desires to do. But what does it take? Just as it took for Gomer, her will had to be broken. and She had to come home. We've got sin in our lives, the thing that's needed, just like the prodigal. You know what it says in Luke 15 about him? says, when he came to himself. When he came to himself. When his will was broken, he said, I will arise and go to my father. That's not the will that he had when he went and left out the front door. But now his will has been broken. And now the will he has is the will of his father. Then and then alone, when he came home, what did he find? He didn't find a frowning father. He found a faithful father. When he comes home, the father's not tucked away behind a locked door. Instead, he's on the front porch looking down the driveway, waiting on him. And he ran and he fell upon him and kissed him and had compassion on him. I just, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just too tired to preach much of a message. But let me just say this, boy, the Lord's good. Even when we sin, the Lord's good. Even in, his, even in the fierceness of his anger, he's good. The Lord is fierce in his anger, but oh, he's gracious in his mercy. We ought to turn to him while we have the time, shouldn't we?